TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Last month, the nonprofit news organization The Marshall Project and Memphis-based journalist Wendy Thomas filed a lawsuit against the Memphis Shelby Crime Commission. The petition was filed in the Shelby County Chancery Court, and it alleges that the Nonprofit Crime Commission has refused to release certain records on matters of public interest. Nonprofits are typically not required to release detailed financial records, but the lawsuit alleges that the Crime Commission directs public policy and the spending of tax dollars. Because of that, the Crime Commission should be held to the same transparency standards as the city, the county, the University of Memphis, and all other public agencies which are typically responsible for creating policy like this. Simone Weitzelbaum is a staff writer for the Marshall Project. She's been closely following the work of the Memphis Shelby Crime Commission and asked her editors to pursue this lawsuit. Simone reports primarily on national policing issues and has previously worked for the New York Daily News, Philadelphia Daily News. She joins us today via telephone from the Marshall Project offices in Manhattan. Thanks for joining us, Simone. Tell us, uh, for those uh, uh, listeners who don't know about the Marshall Project, I hope it's not many of them, but tell us about the Marshall Project, please. We're a nonprofit newsroom that specializes in criminal justice stories, and we co-publish most of our reporting projects with national media and local media. So the story we're going to talk about was with USA Today and the Commercial Appeal, and we often work with the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, and many other outlets. And you yourself have reported for... um, uh newspapers uh, in the Northeast, correct? In my whole entire working life. Um, I'm still based here in New York City. I interned a lot in college and then went to the Philadelphia Daily News and then the New York Daily News, and now I'm here at the Marshall Project. Yeah. And so you've uh, you've written and reported on justice issues around the country. Uh, what's uh, What drew you to the Memphis Shelby Crime Commission, and, and what exactly is it? What did you discover uh, when when you were drawn to it? Sure. So um, I go from one policing reporting project to another here. And the police beat here at the Marshall Project is almost academic. I myself have a graduate degree in criminology, so I also approach my beat almost like a graduate school thesis. So we don't sort of protest on like the approach. We don't report on the protest movement or so much race and policing. We do more broken systems. So I learned about the police shortage just from reading local clips while reporting on another project about um, military veterans who become cops. So a lot of police departments were saying, you know, we want to hire veterans because there's not enough recruits out there. So were I reporting that, I was interested in, you know, why are so many cities all of a sudden complaining about not having cops? What's going on? So when I, we background all our stories, there are many steps into pitching a reporting project here at the Marshall Project. We just can't write anything we want. So one thing we do is we do a really deep dive into what already has been written, both academically and in local newspapers. So on Nexus, which is a way to, you know, clip search, I read a local story about um, your crime commission in February, I believe, 2017, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. February 2018 is when they announced um, receiving the money. It was 2018, I believe. I see. And, and, and never mind. But yeah, and it was just like a local news story that no one really picked up nationally. Yeah. And, and, and what's what stuck out to you? What, why Memphis? Well, coming from being on the police beat here in New York for so many years, I never heard of a, a nonprofit giving the city of New York six million dollars 
to help cops stay on the job. And if that happened, there would be press conferences, stories written about the donors. So when I read that, coming from my tabloid background, yeah. working at the New York Daily News for six years, I was like, how come no one's really going in depth about this? Like, it was just like a one-off story I read. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, mis- I misunderstood. You were talking about the money that, that came from this, this source, the crime this, this crime commission. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. And it was anonymous. No one knew who the donors were. So, again, coming from my background covering the NYPD for so long for the New York Daily News, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? How come people in Memphis aren't demanding to know where this money came from? Yeah. yeah in, the new, in New York, uh, the NYPD has a, has a foundation, right? What does it look like? Well, it's not the NYPD. It's separate. It's called the New York Police Foundation. Gotcha. And their board of trustees, unlike the Crime Commission's board, does not have any sitting um, active city or state officials. The Police Foundation in New York, they fund things like um, pet projects with technology, maybe um, getting iPads for some cops. They also fund um, detectives who do work overseas with our counterterrorism program. That's sort of the most closest thing to policing that it works on. But again, they list these projects on their 990s. It's public information. Your crime commission is different because you go through their 990s or anything that is disclosed. You don't know what's really going on with them. What do you know? Um, I mean, as a, as a, a nonprofit, you know, running this podcast, I, I'm familiar with some of the requirements of a 990 and know what ours looks like. But what what does theirs look like, and what does it disclose about their spending? It does not disclose much about where the money comes from and where it's going. It does list like their board, their address. But as far as itemizing, you know, we spent this amount of money on this project. They don't do that. And that's what sort of also caught my eye. Again, dealing here in New York, our nonprofits aren't all great, but there was a transparency issue. So then um, I tried to talk to the Crime Commission, thinking they would cooperate. I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) And said, yeah, like, oh, I understand if the donors want to be anonymous, maybe you have a donor or two who could just talk to me on record and maybe speak on behalf of the other businesses about why they decided to donate money. I thought, if anything, it'd be like a feel-good interview. Yeah, because yeah, some of the potential yeah. answers you would expect are, are what? You like law enforcement? No, Memphis or, has high crime. <laughs> right, right. right. We, want, we want to help clean up our city so we can attract. Like the line from Bill Gibbons when we had our one interview were that um, the business community and the real estate community wanted to give this money because they want to help the tax base of Memphis, increase it, and then attract big companies to come here, headquarter there, and hire people. So it, it's, a, it's a good theory. But what he said to me, which also stuck out in our interview, was, well, they don't want people to know who they are because they don't want it to seem like they're um, getting favors from the police department. Hmm. <laughs> which is a really interesting thing to say, right? Right, right. So, so needless to say, you didn't talk to any of those donors. There was no feel-good interview. Is that correct? That is correct. And so instead, what did you do? Well, um, I called up Lucian Para. So then I got really curious. Uh-huh. Because at this point, at least what we did know is here's this crime commission, and a lot of their members are public officials. You have your mayor, your police chief's on there, your DA's on there, you have judges, like city, county, state officials, which I've never seen before. That's the first like weird thing to me. You have this nonprofit entity where you have like active duty public servants on the board. Yeah. Second thing, they're giving money to the city. That's interesting. 
So just being a curious reporter, again, out of state, different states have different rules when it comes to disclosure rules, especially for public records. I Googled around, like, who is the main attorney to call? Who would know public records law the best? And I stumbled upon very easily Lucian Para, who's like the main expert in Tennessee when it comes to public records law. Right. And I just cold called him up and I was like, hey, I'm looking into this. Like, what do you think? And he was really excited to take my call and basically taught me about this clause in case law in your state called the functional equivalent of a government entity, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you know a lot about. I had to learn. <laughs> a little bit, but a little bit mostly from, I think, reading reading this article with the, with that in, in the context. Um, and, it, and it's basically... Your 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 theory is that that the crime commi- ultimately the crime commission should have to disclose records that it has refused to disclose. Correct. Correct. And so the theory behind this clause is that if you're a nonprofit that is collecting government money through grants or what have you, and or disseminating government money or money to a government entity, so like a public service like policing, you should be following the rules of your state's public records laws. So, because they gave $6 million to the city to pay for police retention bonuses, I believe that asking for documents, they should be like, yes, here are the documents you're requested. So, simple things like crime analysis reports, they didn't want to share. One thing we were fighting for was um, the Crime Commission hired our former police commissioner here in New York, Raymond Kelly, Mm -hmm. who was then working for a group called K2 Intelligence. And K2 prepared like a crime strategy, crime prevention guidebook, so to speak, paid for by the Crime Commission, but for city officials. I wanted to see that and was not only told no by the Crime Commission, the city of Memphis still hasn't given it to me. So, so this Officially, was, we got this it another way. A guidebook that was prepared with money from the Crime Commission for the use of the city of Memphis, correct? Right. So some of the recommendations were, like, how do we get crime down? So one thing was hire more um, cops in the gang unit. Yeah. But this but this information wit- did, did not come through the public records request? No. Hmm. Actually, um, we partnered with the Commercial Appeal mm-hmm. and the reporter there, mm-hmm. Dan Connolly, when he sat down with the mayor for the, our project, he asked the, pro- the mayor about it and the mayor approved the release and Dan Connolly gave it to me. Got it. So got it, it never actually, we, were ne- we never got it through public records. Got it. Got we got it, it through Dan through the commercial appeal, which again, the city of Memphis kept saying, we don't have a copy of it. We don't have a copy of it. So I find it really funny after months telling us they don't have a copy, the local reporter or we talk to the mayor and like within a few hours he gets the copy. So that huh. makes zero sense to me. Yeah. 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 So, so, so they gave you that. So, so why the lawsuit? Like, keep, keep us, keep us going. What, it, what else did you want? What else did they refuse to give? And, and why did you and Lucian decide to, to file a lawsuit? Well, was it wasn't me, Lucian, and I. It was a very <laughs> oh, sure, long process. Sure. Of course, Lucian of and I, yeah, I think we I don't mean first to skip spoke some in stuff. May. Yeah, and I think we filed in um, February, so it's almost a year. Um, no, it, it's the bottom line is what I would like to know is why did these donors give money? Right. And maybe it, it's, it's, it can be great. It can be like we just want to make our city clean and safe for visitors and new employees. But I believe it is a transparency question I'm asking. I'm not asking anything top secret. It's just to be transparent. Yeah. So but, you're collecting money. Yeah, yeah. You're giving it to the city. Why are you doing it? That's all. That's yeah. all I want to know. Yeah. But well, let's let's explore that for a second if we can. So if so, so say we accept less transparency, say the city of Memphis, because that's what we're talking about um, for, for the crime commission. 
Uh, what are we gaining? So, I mean, public policy, or I'm sorry, public safety is is repeatedly one of the top issues for voters in this community. It's one of the top issues that uh, uh, elected officials and, and and candidates for office run on. Um, exchanging transparency for better public safety policy may be something that a city chooses to do. Um, explore that balance with me. What are, What is your take on that that statement? Well, I think they would argue that they do not impact, but publicly they would say, at least from my point of view from dealing with this topic for almost a year now, is they do not advise, they do not make firm decisions on public policy. This is just getting the smartest people in the room together, both in the public and private sector and government and in a nonprofit world, you know, taking time off their day jobs, coming together in a room and just having conversations. Like, why not have this brain trust? What I'm arguing, going through the documents I did get my hands on within the past year, is that, no, these folks are actually taking off their government hats, coming into a room, and the room is in the nonprofit sector they're arguing. Therefore, someone like me can't say, hey, I want to see those emails, or hey, I want to see those documents that were discussed. And I'm arguing, no, they're actually making decisions that impact public policy. So the Ray Kelly report, for example... That was something that came out of the Crime Commission, and we do know that it impacted, like, hiring cops with gang specialties, like, working on, like, gang crime. The idea of even having, hey, we need more cops, this idea of we need a retention program, that came out of the Crime Commission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the city is doing that. Yeah. So will they argue there's a direct impact? You know, you can ask their attorneys. Am I arguing that? I, yes, I am. <laughs> well, I mean, there's money changing, changing hands going directly to... Um, police retention bonuses, right? <laughs> That's... Right, but they feel they're a nonprofit and um, they don't have to disclose. Got it. Yeah, of course, of course. So then what do you make of their annual report where they say they're the, quote, only entity in the Memphis community spearheading development and implementation of uh, a community-wide plan to reduce crime? Is that is that normal? Like who, in other communities across the country that, that you've looked at, that you've done done reporting in, who typically creates and implements policy for public safety? Well, I think it's common to have what they call stakeholders, which is a, a term as a journalist I hate. I will never use in a story, but it comes up, as you know, uh-huh. in the public policy world. And a stakeholder can be the pastor community, law enforcement community, the public defenders community. It's those in a room who are the experts from, from whether the community, clergy, law enforcement, you know, the world of judges, whatever you want, you know, healthcare, who come in a room and have conversations. But again, from... My background in being in journalism now over 15 years, it's very easy to access those people and have conversations about what was discussed. Why I'm paying so much attention to Memphis, I've never come across a city where you have stakeholders in a room and they're being so top secret about what they're doing. Yeah. And I I honestly don't understand why. Right. And talk to us, you've also done a little research or reporting on, on, you know, just Memphis policing generally, and um, and maybe what Chief Kelly and, and K2 found when they came down here. What, what are some of the uh, their findings that you've discovered? Well, they did issue a thick report, and again, our friends at the Commercial Appeal did get their hands on it, so I right. did have a chance to read it. Right. And if any of your listeners have it, I'm you know, happy to scan and send, because um, I believe it should be disclosed. It's really, you know, it's not the CIA we're talking about. It's a report <laughs> about the Memphis Police Department. So there were issues about... Um, collecting standard stats. So folks at Memphis go on the city's website. 
is a data portal that's buried, which does track violent crime in your officer account, which I used in reporting the story. But in New York and other big cities, you can go on the police department's website, you know, get a ComStat, which is usually a weekly statistical analysis report looking at murder by district or precinct level, uh, rape, aggravated assault, we call it here in New York, car break-ins, and just follow the crime that's going on in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. What was pointed out in Memphis, you can't do that. So even on this simple, like... Those you know, numbers seven, just weren't available. Yeah, they don't exist. You can't find them. Oh. I know from the reporting that the Crime Commission had a MOA, which is a memorandum of agreement between um, them and the police department doing data analysis. So to, to my understanding, the Crime Commission, now this entity called Public Safety Institute, which is sort of a combination between the Crime Commission and the University of Memphis, they have at least one academic on staff who does crunches, crunch numbers for the police department. They also look at statewide data. <clears throat> I was given some reports leaked to us by folks on the board, which also includes just breakdowns, like basic number crunching. Again, I don't know mm-hmm. why it's top secret, but mm-hmm. it's analysis of crime data, which I think should be very easy to find. It should not be someone leaking it to me. <laughs> so that was one issue that was flagged. Um, beefing up different units, like gang crime, adding more officers to that. In conversations I had with cops here in New York or former cops here in New York who did work on Ray Kelly's team, what was really interesting to them was just tracking normal stats. So you guys have a track meeting, which is akin to our ComStat meeting Mm -hmm, here in New mm -hmm. York. It's quite different still. And so they were blown away that, from my understanding, conversations like hotspot policing. So, you know, where are the shootings happening? Can you give it down to the block level? Yeah. Where are the car break-ins happening? Can you give it down to the block level? To my understanding, that wasn't being done. And they that were blown so, away were your, your were the former police officers in New York. Yeah, New York. Yeah, yeah who worked on the team. It, it, so, and to me, that's policing. You know, big city policing one hundred and one. Just mm-hmm, being able to mm-hmm. track at a granular level where your crime is happening and when it's happening. Yeah. And that way, you can understand deployment. Like, where should I be sending my cops? So it gets into the bigger question. Memphis is complaining for years, we don't have enough cops, we don't have enough cops, but they're not using the cops they have to the best ability. Yeah, and, and one of the reasons that they continue to, um, to cite as, as uh, you know, to, for, for more uh, officers uh, is our crime rates, and particularly uh, the current mayor talks a lot about violent crime. He ran uh, on, a, on a platform to address that, uh, and since he took office has relentlessly um, you know, declared that we need more police officers. We need more police officers. Uh, and there's, there, quite simply, it's just it's an outright explicit assertion that more police officers will positively impact our violent crime rate. As a, as a person who's covered policing, what is it, tell us about a policy like that. Where is the research and, and, and where are the places where that has worked, if it has? And where, uh, where are we as a, as a society thinking that more police means less violent crime? To speak to, so I spoke to a lot. That was a thesis coming into this story. We have theses again, like graduate school. Mm-hmm. Does more cops lead to less crime? Got it. The answer is no. There, and I spoke to like leading academics in criminology with this question, folks who are hired by cities to look at police staffing data. And it's so complicated. So you not only have to look at um, city population, 
but you have to factor in other elements. You can't just look at the population by itself. So whether the city has a lot of mountains, what does that have to do with anything? Well, a city that has a lot of mountains is harder to patrol Mm -hmm. than a city that's flat, right? Does a city have an aging population? It could be a city filled with senior citizens with a high population. That's a different city than a city filled of young people, correct? So Mm -hmm. that has different needs, class, whether they're college students. There's so many variables you play into it. Looking at population is not enough. So when, and I know your mayor and and reports I've read, you know, compared what you guys have compared to other cities, you can't really do that because since your population is not enough to compare yourselves to a Nashville or to an Albuquerque. Yeah. It oversimplifies sort of the data that's needed to come back with the best solution. So that's number one. Number two, I know the chart, you've talked about the chart. I study the chart where it's like a bar chart with a line chart like on top of it, uh-huh. tracking the headcount of cops and your violent crime rate. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's used to stoke a lot of fear because if I looked at that chart, not knowing what I know about like policing data, criminology, I would be scared too if I was a member of the public. Right. But knowing what and you I know, what is, what does it tell you? How does it make, make you feel? How do you interpret that chart with a person with a broad criminal uh, justice background? My assumption is, if I know this, anyone in the anyone smart in your policy world will know this too. I think it's used as like a political tool. Okay. So anyone who speaks to like leading academics, and I'm sure, and I hope your city hall speaks to leading academics where they put things out in the public. Yeah. You need more information other than just putting out a chart with two variables. Right. And it, if I'm not in politics, but if I was and played that way, I would put it out to say, you know, it's not not true, right? That's the head count. There's a change. And the violent crime, there's a change. Right. But you really have to dig and understand the numbers to understand whether there's a correlation going on or not. Right, right. It's not quite that simple. Well, right. So back to the transparency question, I mean, it sounds like you started out with this uh, to try to prove this uh, or at least understand this concept of more police, less crime. Uh, and you kind of got a little bit sidetracked by the fact that Memphis has um, addressed that problem with this private organization, this uh, Memphis uh, Shelby Crime Commission, uh, and which has sort of led you into this lawsuit about transparency, about releasing records. Um, tell us, I mean, I guess maybe this is, requires you to take your reporting hat off and maybe give us a little bit of an opinion, which you've done a little bit of, but not much. Why is disclosure and transparency so important when it comes to creating public safety policy like this, when it comes to uh, dialing in the right number of police officers and the right policing strategy? Why is disclosure and transparency, why is that important? Well, my biggest fear, knowing what we do know at this point, that you had companies like FedEx and AutoZone contribute money to this fund, which then went on to retention bonuses. So what we don't want, right, in our country, we are still a democracy or a republic, pick whichever word you want. <laughs> you don't want big money dictating public service. So what I want to know is, did FedEx and AutoZone and the big companies of Memphis give them money, and that's great, and cops are staying on the force, or is there other reasons why? So if you aren't transparent, one's mind starts to wander. Because mm-hmm. I know mine, mine is regarding this Memphis question. Why are big companies giving money for policing in your city? Yeah, And my brain can, can come up with a thousand theories, but until we report it out, we don't really know the answer. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we appreciate as, as, you know, folks who live in Memphis, we appreciate your pursuit, um, 
of the answer to that question. You know, uh, Simo, while I've got you on the phone, when it, uh, you, one of your other jobs is that you co-chair the diversity and inclusion work there at the Marshall Project. And uh, we, we interview a lot of journalists on, on this um, on this podcast and uh, mostly local, but a few national folks. And, you know, Memphis as a, a majority minority city, uh, you know, faces a lot of uh, challenges when it comes to the people who are, who are reporting, who are working in journalism in the city. And so just, you know, I know that we talked a little bit beforehand and this could be an entire episode and, and we may have you back to, to do that. But it, while we've got you here, just give us a few minutes on why that is important. So we've got a city, you know, the city that is 70% African-American. Why is it important to have those voices? Uh, and and, and what, do, what do we do about those challenges? How do we overcome the challenge of having voices reporting on our city that, that look and sound like the people uh, in our city? Well, um, I'm biracial. I know my last name throws people off sometimes, but I'm half black and half Jewish. And because of my background here, I met Wendy Thomas, actually at a Harvard panel, but we reconnected again at NABJ, which is a national association of black journalists at the Marshall Projects booth. She came to hang out with me and she met um, my editor who's now retiring, but the editor of this project, Bill Keller. And um, she just told us about what was going on in Memphis. This was around the time when I was like sniffing around the subject. And I'm so happy to have worked with Wendy Thomas on this project. When I learned that, oh, we need to have someone local, like file public records requests, because Tennessee is one of the few states where you actually have to be a state resident to get public records. And your city made it like, would even give me like homicide numbers without a public records request. So they made it very difficult. My network led me to Wendy and Wendy has been phenomenal on this project because she's just so plugged in to city politics, to racial issues in the city. And she's a force. Yeah, yeah, she is. So shout out to Wendy. Yeah, yeah. Who is, you know, leading our lawsuit because, again, she is the state resident. So thank you, Wendy. Hopefully you'll listen to this. We'll make sure she does. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important because you um, not only are plugged into networks and to worlds that, like, a standard white male journalist would not be, you also understand impact differently. So pitching this to the USA Today Network Commercial Appeal some pushback was, well, the Crime Commission, they've been around forever. You know, we haven't really questioned them, but they've been here. And someone said, well, you know, FedEx, you know, donated to this fund. Well, FedEx is a big employer in Memphis. And what's wrong with the biggest employer giving money for cops? And again, this is coming from like white male voices. So I said, well, what do African-American folks have to say about that? Especially those who aren't employed about uh, through um, FedEx. There's no say. They don't have a voice at the table. Why does big, big business have a voice at the table? Yeah. And again, it's just perspective. Yeah. So, so, so the, chal- yeah. the, the challenge is to offer that perspective from your, your organization. And, uh, and that's something that I know that the Marshall Project struggles with, just like the Commercial Appeal does, just like the Daily Memphian does, just like the Memphis Flyer does. It's a, it's a lifelong work, I think. Well, what I helped build out our diversity committee here. And we started it in 2016. And I come from like the NABJ world and have a lot of mentors who have retired or are retiring. So when Bill Keller and I went to a conference in 2016, Unity, that's NABJ and NAHA combined, um, we had dinner with some of like elders, if you will, of the NABJ world. And we asked them, what is the bare minimum we should be doing with diversity? Now, we launched in November 2014. So this is about 18 months of us being born. I've been with the Marshall Project pre-launch, so I was there, I don't know, about 20 months when we started having this conversation, and we were told, like, an internship program, a fellowship program, 
and a committee, like people to stay on top of this. And it's hard work. First of all, going to all the conventions, swag, right? You're going to have a booth at a career fair. You have to give away stickers or like pins or something, <laughs> tracking people. Uh, the list goes on and on. And now we're working on inclusion. So we were just doing diversity in 2019. We have now turned to inclusion work. And what is inclusion? It's turning the energy of doing the outreach and the hiring inward. So it's like growing your talent. So sending people to, um, I got to go to this really cool conference for data reporting for the first time. So it's allowing people who may not, you know, have skill set A, go work on that skill set. It's how to make your employees happy, how to groom people for leadership. So I actually have two hats here at the Marshall Project, and I could argue that my D&I work probably takes up 60% of my time. I'm doing more of that these days oh, wow. than actual police reporting because as we grow as an institution, it's a lot of work. So it's not easy at all, but it's very, very important. Right, right. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that work. I, As as most work that uh, is important and, and starts in places like New York City, it uh, it gets uh, to places like Memphis. It sounds like in this case, uh, Wendy Thomas has has taken that work uh, out from Memphis in many ways. So we're we're proud of her uh, as a journalist who is uh, who's working with people like you. So, and well, I'm proud to work with her. Yeah. Well, th- thanks again, Simone, for for your work on uh, this uh, this story and for you know bringing it to to the courts of this community to to decide whether. Uh, whether the people of this community get to see information that is being used to make uh, very important public policy decisions. We appreciate that. And thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. And hopefully when we'll see where this goes and maybe I'll come back once this whole thing is resolved. Yeah, we'd love that. We'd love that. Thanks, Simone. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. That was Simone Weitzelbaum of The Marshall Project in conversation and on the permanent record. My thanks to Simone for taking the time to discuss the Crime Commission lawsuit and share some of her reporting experience with us. If you don't already, subscribe to the Marshall Project opening statement. It's a daily email featuring original reporting and the best roundup of criminal justice news that you'll find anywhere. Sign up at themarshallproject.org. As always, thanks to Carlin Gilworth and new arrival India Nikitich at the OAM Network for their support of the podcasting community in Memphis. Check out some of their other shows at theoamnetwork.com. Jeff Hewlett wrote and performs She Got Gone, the original theme music for the permanent record. His newest album, Around These Parts, is out now. Look for Jeff playing around town and pick up a copy for yourself. I'm Josh Spickler. This is the permanent record. I do have a copy of Jeff Hewlett's new album. This is a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at justcity901. Make sure you're subscribing to the permanent record somewhere, including Spotify now. Leave us a rating. It helps us build an audience. In Adjust City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both. Hey, this is Josh again. Uh, I wanted to ask Simone a, a question that included this uh, quote from the article that uh, came out when this lawsuit was filed, but I just never found a chance to do it. So I want to close out this episode by reading this quote from Bill Keller, who Simone mentioned a few times. He was the editor-in-chief at the Marshall Project, and he retired recently. And he said about, uh, about the Memphis Shelby Crime Commission, In the course of our reporting, we ran across this unusual situation of an ostensibly non-official commission that advises official Memphis on matters of crime and punishment, and that also serves as a conduit for private money to police. It's an unusual situation, and it seemed to us that the commission's records should be public information, given that about half of its board members are public officials or public employees of some kind. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it ought to have to disclose like a duck. TheOAMNetwork.com
power to the podcast.